Amen. Good morning, church family. Good to see those of you who are here in person. For those of you online, thank you for joining us. I give God thanks today for all the different ways God keeps us connected, especially in the season we're in and in days like this when I know it's uh, very cold and, and some of you don't need to be out uh, right now. As Kip mentioned just a few moments ago, there is a, a, just a, a big loss in the life of this church this past week. Um, Eric Cheney was a brother and a friend, a great servant. Many of you in this church, you didn't see him on Sunday mornings. He was up in the crow's nest. In my 13 years here, I can only think of just a few times, probably just one hand, of how many times Eric missed a, a Sunday service. And that's just talking about Sunday services. Eric was usually up there for funerals, weddings, special services uh, that we would have. And his job, his role, was to make us on stage look better and sound better. And that's what he did. We're going to miss this guy so much. There's a void in our church, a void in our lives, a void in our hearts. But we stand on a few promises this morning as a church. Some of these we have sung about this morning and others we just needed to declare. That death is a thief, but death is not a victor. That death is alive, but death has a lifespan. And according to the Bible, it says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed isn't going to be Satan, it's death. And there are those who argue that Satan works for death. That the clock is ticking on death, the clock is ticking on injustice. These are not things that will be eternal. And today at 2 o'clock, we're going to celebrate Eric's life. We're going to have a funeral. It's, it will be here. Some of you may try to come out in person, and it will also be a, a provided uh, on our live stream uh, services. So if you want to tune in, and we're going to celebrate Eric's life, but this morning in this service, and even today at two o'clock, we're going to honor his life, but more than anything, we want to honor the God who gives us hope that we will be reconnected with those who go before us. So before I dive into the, the meat of the sermon this morning and what I want to teach about, can we just bow our heads and can we pray together and give God thanks that death is not how our story ends. The tomb is empty. There is a living hope that uh, God pumps into our veins. It's in us. Today I'm asking God for uh, the Spirit, your Holy Spirit, to work in and through me that Christ may be formed in hearts through the words of my preaching. I pray over the next little while, God, if I say anything that doesn't honor who you are, that it will fall to the ground, be trampled by you, and that it will not be remembered. But if I speak anything that honors your heart, your character, your nature, your mission, may those words sink deep into our hearts and bear great fruit this week. I lift this up in the power of your name. Amen. This is the seventh week of the year. It's the seventh week in a seven-week series that I've been in called One Love. We've looked at Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, where there's a lawyer who comes into the presence of Jesus and challenges Jesus. What is the greatest command? And Jesus responds by saying the greatest command, the greatest command of all is this. You love the Lord your God with everything you have, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the next command, the second command, which is right behind that one, is you love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commands together is what changed the world. It wasn't just Jesus' willingness to love the Lord his God with everything he had. And it wasn't just Jesus' willingness to love a neighbor as himself. What transformed and changed the world is that Jesus took both of these and embodied them, lived them, and everything in his life. He loved the Lord his God with everything he have, ha had, and he loved and continues to love his neighbor as himself. 
This is the mission of the church. Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. Through this, Jesus stepped into the world to love God and to love neighbor. Jesus stepped into the world at a time when the world was in complete chaos, at the time the world was a complete mess. It seemed like Jesus could have waited to, to have stepped into the world and human flesh when things were a little more unified and peaceful, but it wasn't that way. And I think it's a way for us to even know today when Jesus chooses to step into your life isn't when you've cleaned stuff up and when your life is nice and neat and then Jesus steps in. Jesus wants us to know today, Jesus steps into your life, Jesus steps into the world when things are a complete mess, not waiting on things to get all cleaned up so he can step into something that is neat, but that he steps into the mess so that Jesus can come to clean up and to purify and to make us into everything God wants us to be. This is good news. Today I want to talk about reconciliation a little bit. That as we love God and as we love neighbor, reconciliation is something that flows. This is a mission in the church, and according to the Bible, this is something that God has entrusted to the church. Now, if you look at branches of Christianity, so if you look at uh, denominations all over the world, every single branch of Christianity practices some form of baptism. There's commands throughout the Bible of baptism, and there are branches of Christianity that celebrate them. As, as Sycamore View, we practice baptism as immersion. So we, whether it's in some of your, uh, we've seen this happen in swimming pools and lakes and rivers and oceans, or right here in our church where we step into a baptistry that is behind me, we practice immersion. So we practice going under the water as we die with Christ, and we come out of the water as new creation. We die with Christ, we rise with Christ. Uh, I think of uh, even processing this morning, I was thinking about um, Diario is a, a member of this church, and Diario is someone I baptized a few years ago. He's 6'4", a pretty stocky dude, and we were in the water, and I was just walking him through. Kip was singing a song with the praise team. It was on a Sunday morning, and uh, I was just walking him through what was about to happen, how I was going to put him under, leave him under there for three seconds, lifting back up out of the water, and he looked at me before the song was over, and he said, Josh, I just have one question. Are you going to be able to lift me back up after you put me down? And I looked Dario in the eye because I had to kind of look up and I said, Man, I have about a 75% success rate. So it's a good chance I'm going to be able to get you back up. But then I said, If I can't, what better way for you to go than th that you're under, under the water with Jesus? And that did not give Dario much comfort at all. His eyes were big and we had a moment. There was another Sunday I was in this church, or in, in, in this church, I think it was in this church. I had to go get a drink at a water fountain right before I was going to get up to teach. And as I went to the water fountain, I was greeted by a, a visitor. I had never seen this person before. That night, Jesus woke him up and told him that he needed to wake up and go to church that day. He hadn't been to church since he was a small kid with his grandmother. He said he started to make phone calls, calling churches in the neighborhood. He started to call the churches just to see what times churches offered a worship service, and we were the first church he called who had something on our voicemail about the times of our services. So he just showed up, and he said, man, I, I'm here, and I think I need to know something about Jesus. And there are times when like, God calls the church to go into the world and to go connect with people in the world and tell them about Jesus, and then there are times where opportunities just fall in our lap. And this is one of those moments. It just fell in our lap. This guy and I started meeting at Waffle House where we began reading the Gospel of Luke together. Sitting in Waffle House, reading Luke. 
as we're processing what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Months went by, and we had been talking about what it means to follow Jesus, and he was getting closer to wanting to surrender his life to God, and I had talked to him about this invitation, what it means to follow Jesus, and what it means to be baptized into Christ. And one thing I appreciated about this brother is he was taking his conversion so seriously that he, he wanted to make sure if he said yes to Jesus, if he chose to be baptized, that he knew what he was signing on to. And it's part of how I, the questions I asked him and the questions I asked people, and maybe some of you who are participating in this service, is for those of you who have never been baptized, you need someone to say, why have you not been baptized before? Why would you not want to receive all of the promises and the gifts that come with, the, with, the, with baptism? But then there's also a question of, are you sure you want to be baptized? Like, are you sure you want to step into what Jesus is asking of you in your life? Because this isn't just get out of hell free card or I'm baptized and I'm done and now I'm just good with God for the rest of my life. This is, in fact, when I talk about baptism, I like to talk about a few things. Baptism is invitation. Baptism is initiation. And baptism is enlistment. It's invitation into life with God. It's initiation where we are given a new name, a new identity. New creation is how the Bible talks about it. And baptism is also enlistment. It's about you stepping into a mission. It's about God trusting you, not just wanting to save you, but trusting you to be a partner in the kingdom of God. This is a great gift that God gives you. Right? That in salvation, God is saying, I believe in you. I believe in me and you. Let's go, let's go do something for the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a place where it talks about reconciliation and it also talks about conversion. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, here's here's what the Bible says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. It's baptismal conversion language. Old is gone, new is here. And that all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling to the world, to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That God has trusted us. God has trusted the church with the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is hard. Whether we're t- talking about reconciliation that needs to happen in marriages, in race relations, Reconciliation that needs to happen between rich and poor, between nations. I mean, you just, reconciliation is hard. But before we think about how hard reconciliation is for us, we need to begin by looking to see how hard God has worked to bring reconciliation to the world. So what I want to do this morning is instead of going all prophetic on you, like how you need to be ministers of reconciliation in your life, I want to look at the character of God. What, what is it that makes God a great reconciler? And then let's let, let some of those principles of what makes God the ultimate reconciler be played out in our lives this week. So part of what I did this past, uh, past few weeks is I've, I've just looked at places throughout the Bible that either talk about or celebrate reconciliation. This word is only used one time in the book of Acts. And the only time it's used in Acts is actually a time when you had this guy Stephen in Acts chapter 7. 
who is talking right before he's about to die. He's about to be stoned to death because of his faith. And what he says in Acts chapter 7 verse 26 is this. He's telling the story of God walking through the Old Testament trying to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah. And what he says is this. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, your brothers, why do you want to hurt each other? And as I read that, it made me pause. And it led me into praying over this church and churches all around us and the culture that we're in. That especially over the last six months, with the political season that we've been in and cultural unrest, this right here is something that I've seen happen in the lives of people all around us. And it makes us just want to say, like, why, why are people hurting each other with words? And, and I've never seen more families divided over political unrest than over the last few months. Like, why are we allowing things to hurt us? And it's good for all of us to know that there are businesses and corporations and organizations and, and party lines throughout our country that make a lot of money out of keeping us divided. If you can keep people divided... You can cause people to be loyal. So reconciliation isn't on the mind of so many organizations throughout our country or throughout the world. And God gives us a new way. I want you to listen to just a few places in the Bible that talk about reconciliation. And I want you just to focus in on what these things say about God. And I want you to notice how every example of reconciliation in the New Testament that I'm about to read references and points to the sacrifice of Jesus and how vital it was for reconciliation. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In Colossians 1, 19-22, it says this, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, where here Paul is making this appeal to Jews and Gentiles to come together. And in verse 15, it says this, His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which we put to death, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, I could make a list of a lot of things that makes God a great reconciler, but here's five. And number one is this, God is a truth teller. That for reconciliation to happen in any place in life, you've got to be able to tell the truth. You've got to be able to speak truth to what it is that has caused reconciliation to need to be like to, for it to happen. Number one, God's a truth teller. Number two, God is a bridge builder. And you see this in no greater example than in and through Jesus, that God is willing to build a bridge and to make a bridge to connect with the world, to connect with human, with human life. And number three, not only is God a bridge builder, God is a bridge walker. God is willing to walk on any bridge God builds. 
that when God builds a bridge, God doesn't just announce, hey, there's a bridge and now you come to me. And God doesn't even build a bridge and ask us to meet God halfway. God builds a bridge and then God is willing to walk over that bridge to connect with you where you are in life. God's a bridge builder. God's a bridge walker. Number four, that God is able to look at the past, the present, and the future and hold them all together. Originally in this point I had that God's head is on a swivel. God is able to look at the past and interpret the past and think about the past. God lives in the present and God is able to move us into a future. There cannot be reconciliation in any part of your life if you're not able to speak about the past in healthy ways, to live in the present, and to know there's a future to move into. And last but not least, God is willing to move. Reconciliation cannot happen where there is not movement. It takes movement. So when it comes to reconciliation, what you learn from God and what we take into our lives, God's a truth teller. God's a bridge builder. God walks across the bridges God builds. That God is able to look at the past, present, and the future. And last but not least, that God is willing to move. One of my favorite places to go to in the Bible to talk and think about reconciliation is Romans chapter 11, or the book of Romans. And I wrestled this week. Did I want to read Romans 11 first and then give you background to the book of Romans, or did I want to give you background to the book of Romans and then read Romans 11? And I want to start by giving you background. Now, there's some places in the Bible where I think background can kind of help you, and then there are other places in the Bible where I think the background of the story that is being told will totally transform how you read it. And the book of Romans is one of those where I think having background will transform how you see and read this book. So here's some of the background to the book of Romans. About 150 years before Jesus was born, there was an influx of Jews into the city of Rome. In fact, this morning Kip's going to come up here and Kip's going to represent the Jews for us. So he's going to be over here to my right, at least seven feet apart from me. Um, Gifts representing the Jews. There was an influx of Jews in Rome, and here's why. There were a lot of job opportunities. So Rome was expanding, which meant Rome, they were building cities, and even within the city of Rome, there were all kind of buildings that were being built. So the, uh, there was an influx of Jews who could work with their hands. There were carpenters. They could build things with stones. And they weren't great paying jobs, but there was great job security because some of these projects were going to take years. So there's an influx of Jews in the Rome. And not only that, once you get to Julius Caesar and Augustus, two emperors who were emperors for decades, they were, they were very favorable toward the Jews. It seemed like they liked the Jews. So what they did is they gave them special privileges. They gave them religious freedom. So they didn't force Jews to worship all the other gods that Rome bowed down to. They let Jews, And not, not only did they let them worship how they wanted to worship, they gave the Jews space to build their own synagogues. We know for a fact today there were multiple synagogues in Rome. Not just one. There were so many Jews. They needed multiple synagogues. They were exempt from military. Hardly anybody was exempt from the military in Rome. They let the Jews. They were exempt from military. So they were favorable. They were respectful. And then what ended up happening after the day of Pentecost, 
You had Jews who would leave Rome at least once a year to travel to Jerusalem to attend some of the festivals. And as some Jews went to Jerusalem to attend festivals, they began hearing about the message of Jesus. So now you have Jews going to Jerusalem who hear the gospel, accept the gospel, surrender their lives to Jesus, and now they go back to Rome and they start churches. So you have some churches in Rome, Christian churches, who have been there over 15 years Jewish churches, primarily Jewish leaders, but also Jews who understood that the gospel of Jesus now isn't just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. So Jews start witnessing, they start evangelizing, and then, Brandon Cooper, will you come represent the Gentiles for me over here on my left? And then you have some Gentiles who become part of the church. But how this happened for about 15 years, some of these Gentiles are baby Christians. They don't know the story of the Old Testament. The Jews did. So for 15 years, you have a church with a lot of Jews and some Gentiles with primary Jewish leadership and some Jewish practices that they probably continued. Some of the prayers they prayed, some of the songs they would sing, maybe some other things they did throughout the year. And you could probably imagine how there was this ego. They could have easily been a part of the Jews. And Can you give me yeah, like a power pose? Because the power post for the Jews was, to the Gentiles, was, do you understand what a privilege it is that God has allowed you to be part of our story? And then A.D. 49 happened, where Emperor Claudius, who had been emperor for a few years at this point, and he was, I mean, there were moments throughout Emperor Claudius's life where he was a complete coward. He wasn't the best guy. Married four times. The marriage to his cousin didn't work out. He he was married, he had another wife who she, I mean, quote unquote, died on the wedding day somehow. He had another marriage with Miss Alina, and she cheated on him with all kinds of people. So he got rid of her, had her killed. And then there was Agrippina, the niece, and this marriage actually worked out for a few years. He married, one of his marriages was to a cousin and another to a niece, and this is where I really want to make jokes about that Emperor Claudius was actually from Arkansas. But those are jokes I would make earlier on in my ministry. I don't make those jokes anymore. I've matured a little bit, all right? But you, you know it's a little funny, right? <clears throat> so marriages were working out. AD 49, he's married to Agrippina, his niece. And in AD 49, Emperor Claudius began hearing about Christus, Christ, and this movement of Christians And what many people believe is that there were either Jew or Gentile men or women of influence, influence throughout the Roman Empire, who began surrendering their lives to Jesus. So they're no longer honoring all the other gods that Rome honored. And Emperor Claudius began hearing about this. There was this movement of Christians, of Christus, and he got really upset. So in AD 49, Emperor Claudius sent out an edict. You read about this in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, that he kicked the Jews out of Rome. In AD 49, so just get out of the screenshot right now. Jews, you're gone. So imagine what happened in the church when the Jews are kicked out. That for five years it became a Gentile church, right? Gentile leaders, Gentile church, which meant that there were probably some Jewish practices that had been that they had held in that church for a number of years. Then now the Gentiles, I mean, they didn't see the reason they should continue those practices. The way they worship God seemed to be sufficient. And you can probably imagine how there was a little bit of ego now in the lives of Gentiles thinking, well... The Jews had a chance for thousands of years to stay faithful to God, and they didn't. 
So now God has brought us into the kingdom. And now look what has happened to the church. Gentile church, Gentile leaders. For five years, this is how it happened. Now, what probably happened with the Jews when they got kicked out of uh, Rome is some of them end up going to Corinth, which is where Paul was. And they start connecting with Paul. And Paul begins hearing about the church in Rome and some of their struggles. And then in AD 54, Agrippina the niece decided she was ready for a new emperor, and she didn't want her husband to be an emperor anymore. And there are different stories of how Claudius died, but most people believe that Agrippina, his wife, somehow poisoned his food, and he dies. Emperor Nero takes over. And when Emperor Nero takes over, just like in our nation, when there are new presidents, there are new laws that are signed within the first few weeks or first months in office, and Nero looked at this whole thing that had happened with the Jews and thought, you know what, I mean, those Jews actually helped us out quite a bit. It was ridiculous that Claudius kicked him out of Rome. So in AD 54, the edict is lifted and the Jews come back into Rome. And can you imagine what church was like after being apart for five years? And now they step into church and it's primarily Gentile leaders now. And the Jews come in and they hear some of these songs and the Jews are probably like, can someone please tell us who Hillsong is? Who's Bethel? What are these new songs we're singing? What do you mean there are people in the church who haven't sung 728B, which is a song for churches of Christ in many of our hymn books? What do you mean you haven't sung it in five years? What do you mean that the worship flow now isn't two songs and announcements and a song and a prayer and a song in communion? Like, what has happened And can you imagine some of the tension? And the easiest thing the church could have done or Paul could have done was to have said, you know what? It's going to be way too hard for this church to continue doing church together. Why don't we set up a Jewish church on one side of town and a Gentile church on another side of town and you all just be nice to each other in the marketplace and and know that you'll be together in heaven, but it's going to be way too hard to learn to do this now. But instead, I think this is how we're supposed to read the book of Romans. That Paul wrote Romans not just to help people know what it means to be saved, but to know what it means to be a unified church living in a time when unity was not easy. This is what it means to be the church. So thanks, uh, thanks Kip. Thanks, Brandon, for <laughs> learning to... Uh, to get along and be together. This is a challenge we're in. And it's with this lens that I want you to hear Romans chapter 11 today. And in Romans 9 and 10, Paul's mostly speaking to Jews, and now he's going to turn it. Now he's going to talk to these Gentiles. And what he says in verse 13 of chapter 11 is this. I'm talking to you Gentiles. And as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I, I take pride in my ministry and the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people, Jewish people, to envy and save some of them. He wants the Jews to know who Jesus is. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? 
If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so were the branches. And now Paul's going to use this whole branch grafting image to talk about the church. Now, every, every metaphor breaks down at some point. But Paul's trying to make a point of how Jews and Gentiles have been brought into the same story. So in verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. And I love it. Like, you don't support the gospel. The gospel is what supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. This is how great our God is. After all, if you were cut off, if you were cut out an, of, of an olive tree that is, that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Are you able to hear this just a little differently this morning? So here's the challenge for us as we read Romans 11. Because part of how Paul talks about reconciliation is that the Jews have had this story for thousands of years. And many Jews don't believe in Jesus. So Gentiles have been grafted into the story. And the way Romans 11 works is that none of us in this room or on the screens today, none of us get to be the Jew in the story in Romans chapter 11. The way reconciliation works is that other people are not, don't need to be asked to become part of your narrative. Reconciliation means all of us have to move. Reconciliation in God means that all of us are grafted into God's narrative. So it's not that black people need to be grafted into a white narrative, or that white people need to be grafted into a black narrative, or that poor people need to be grafted into a rich narrative, or that the other nations in the world need to be grafted into an American narrative. It's that all people are grafted into God's narrative. And what a great invitation and a gift to us today. This is what reconciliation looks like in the world. It's knowing who it is who has grafted us into his story. And this alters how we invite others into this story. That all of us have access to God through the same waters of baptism. And all of us, when we take the bread and the cup, are making a commitment to God. Not just our own personal commitment, but the way we live lives through the bread and the cup every Sunday we are reminded that we are ministers of reconciliation. We felt like this would be a really good time for us to come to a table today. Just all of our differences coming to the place where God has united all of us in Christ. As we come to the table, I want to share just one short story. And as, as, as we 
as we come to the table, also, uh, I meant to mention this at the beginning of my sermon. Today's Valentine's Day. So hopefully you got something for those you love. And it's a day as for marriages in our church that we rally around you. We want marriages to thrive in the life of our church. And it's also a day for the singles in the room and the singles who are participating today, whether you're single by choice or not, or widows, to know that the, you need to hear the church say that your worth and your identity and your mission is not based on marital status. That as we come to this table, we come as people who have been redeemed by God, all of us. There's a story that was told a few years ago of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, the so two professional basketball players who hated each other. They played against each other in college, and they played, against, they played in championship games in college, and they make it to the NBA, and they're rivals in the NBA. It's Lakers versus Celtics. So they did not like each other at all. Well, Converse ended up signing shoe deals with both of them. And then Converse had them sign a deal, an agreement, that they would do a commercial together. And Larry Bird said the only way he was going to do the commercial is if it was shot on his farm in Indiana. So the camera crew and Magic Johnson went to Indiana to Larry Bird's farm to shoot this commercial. And they're out on this basketball court and they're circling each other like rivals do. And Larry Bird had on white Converse shoes. Magic Johnson had on black Converse shoes. And they took a break and they were, everybody was going to go do lunch and come back and they were going to shoot a couple more scenes. And as they broke for lunch, Larry Bird was going going his way, and Magic Johnson was going his. And Larry Bird's mom stepped out on the porch and said, Larry, Magic, I made lunch for both of you. Come in the house and eat. And they did. And Larry Bird's on the record saying that that was the day that Magic Johnson became Irvin Johnson to him. That no longer was he just Magic as rival. That was the day that he learned who Magic Johnson was as a person. That continued to strike up a friendship that has lasted all the way to today. It's at the table that our hearts are open to see who we are in God. And it's at the table that our hearts are open to see the kind of people we are to be in the world. So with that said, let's pray for the bread and the cup today.